This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. And thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Today's episode is part of a seven-part series titled Religious Self-Destruction that examines indoctrination using models borrowed from identity psychology. I'll be explaining what indoctrination means to me and why I consider it a distinctly unique process that should be differentiated from other life experiences. This series mirrors articles found at the At Home in My Head blog, each of which contains links to sources and citations used in this podcast. A link to the table of contents for the Religious Self-Destruction article series is also included in the description, along with links to support and resources for those who come out of indoctrination. And now for Episode 6 of Religious Self-Destruction, Promoting the Foreclosed Identity. So the question is, How were people like me diverted on their way to achieving an identity so that we landed in a foreclosed state, didn't recognize our symptoms, the plague of constant internal dissonance as a problem, and believed we had deeply explored to reach our religious views when we clearly had not? There will be variations based on religion and denomination, but what my church laid out as the basic message of salvation was fairly simple. It's useful to understand at least the Cliff's Notes version before proceeding into how my church applied the mechanisms we've reviewed so far in order to promote foreclosed identities. The following is a list of bullet points. God made humans. Humans defied God, allowing evil to enter the world. All humans are now sinners born into a sinful world. Sinners are deserving of and sentenced to mortal death, although they retain an immortal soul. After mortal death, souls spend eternity in a nice heaven or a horrifying hell. Sin cannot exist in the presence of God in heaven, so all sinners are destined for hell. Out of love of humans and his infinite mercy, God made part of himself, Jesus, human, came to earth, and had himself executed. The execution was an intentional sacrifice in which God paid the death sentence of all sinners, so sinners could be forgiven, their sins wiped away, and their debt paid, and gain access to heaven. The sacrifice is not automatic, however, and the sinner must choose to accept it or else it won't work. To accept it, the sinner must believe in its efficacy, confess to and renounce their sinful nature, in my church baptism was also required, and proceed in life always trying but never succeeding to live according to God's requirements, praying and asking forgiveness for every misstep. If the rules are followed and forgiveness asked as needed, the person may avoid hell and enter heaven. The following quote is from Frederick Walborn in Religion and Personality Theory. When religious people are in crisis or a time of doubting, do they seek people and literature that would support their beliefs, belief-confirming consultation, or do they seek a balance and seek friends with no religious preference or even literature that is against their beliefs, belief-threatening consultation? 
people who scored higher on identity achievement, crisis and commitment, tend to seek out belief-confirming and belief-threatening consultations. The identity-foreclosed group, no crisis but commitment, significantly sought less threatening consultation. They did not want to hear information that challenged their beliefs. End quote. In a prior post, I described what I saw as I looked back at my former theist self. I envisioned digging in a small sandbox, drilling down as deeply as I could, but never realizing there were walls all around me restricting where I could explore. After leaving religion, it was like stepping out of the box and realizing there was an endless horizon in every direction to explore. I don't believe my list is exhaustive, but following are some methods that were used to successfully keep me busy exploring, confirming spaces, while keeping productive exploration or challenges to religious claims off limits. If you'd have told me I was avoiding challenges to my belief, I wouldn't have believed you, even though that's exactly what I was doing. The way the church framed this process, however, obscured that reality. In part five, I talked about introjection. It's when we internalize other people's judgments about us. When we're bombarded with criticisms about ourselves and lack the capacity and experience to psychologically defend ourselves against unfair attacks, as in the case of children, we may absorb these judgments in a way that makes it difficult to distinguish them from our own as time goes on. So how is religious identity introjected? Well, do authoritarian conservative Christian denominations bombard children with messages of blame and shame? I'd say absolutely yes. My original talk was one and a half hours long. One reason was the exhaustive list of examples provided by religious sites. Here are a few I used in the original slide presentation. The message is that we all deserve to die, but merciful Jesus died for us to save us all from hell. As if telling a child they deserve to die wouldn't be sufficient on its own, there's the added entry into an eternal paradise they don't deserve, gained through the brutal execution of an innocent who volunteered for the mission out of pure love and mercy. This creates a sense of obligation in the child. The brutality of the death of Jesus is expounded upon as kids get older, but with younger ones, the concept of the blame and the adopting attitude of deep gratitude is still explored in songs, such as Jesus Loves the Little Children, which contains the verse, Jesus died for all the children, all the children of the world. Literally, even as children, we deserve death and owe a debt of gratitude to a God who paid for our sins through the brutal and bloody death of his only child, Jesus. Here's the first quote. One way to understand the meaning of the death of Jesus is to imagine a courtroom scene in which we are on trial for the sins and God is the judge. Our sins against God are capital crimes. God himself is our judge, and according to divine law, our crimes deserve the death penalty. Death, in a spiritual sense, means eternal separation from God in unending torment. That is a very serious judgment. The next quote. Human beings have an innate desire to rid themselves of guilt when they know they've done something wrong. There's nothing like a clear conscience it is always an important moment when an individual admits to God the sins he or she has committed. Another aspect of repentance, a firm resolve to turn away from sin, must accompany admission of guilt. When that really happens, we can absolutely count on forgiveness from God. Why is this so? Why does God then bind himself to completely and totally forgive all transgressions of his great spiritual law? 
no matter how serious? All Christians know the answer to that question is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, For God the Father so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish eternally, but have eternal life. End quote. In part five, we looked at how negative messaging can harm children. One therapy site used the example, you never do anything right, to demonstrate potentially damaging messaging interjected into a child. Consider the magnitude of an entire community, including the parents, repeatedly telling a child they deserve to die because they are so purely evil. Then add the guilt integrated by telling them someone sacrificed their own life to save the child from a deserved death. If you never do anything right is damaging, can you deserve to be dead and you're only here because an innocent person was willing to die in your stead be good? And once the child is convinced of this, what are they to do? As we discussed in part four, when a person is confronted with damage they've caused, the inclination is to try and make it right. But how does a child make this horrifying situation right? Are they now required to be good citizens, to share their toys, take turns, and be considerate of others? No. The fact is, they're instructed to repay the debt by devoting the rest of their lives to living in accordance with a list of rules the church mandates God would have them obey. This includes regulations against being gay or trans or an empowered woman. It condemns natural human thoughts about sex and anger. Much of what is required, according to these churches, is not being a good human being, but rather becoming inhuman. This is where the constant dysfunctional internal dissonance arises from trying to live every day as though they are not human. The church also vilifies the achieved identity. There's no room to live according to one's own will, goals, or motives. Anything that does not align with the very dehumanizing, conservative, authoritarian Christian ideal must be subdued and continually conquered in submission to the church. Following are some examples of how this is expressed. Quote number one. What is the chief end of man? The response is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Quote number two. We can correctly conclude that the purpose of our existence is to glorify God. Quote number three. First, to pray, your will be done, is to recognize the sovereignty of God over every aspect of our daily lives. In effect, it's a way of saying, thank God this world is under his control and not mine. Fact is, we don't know what's best for us. We only see a snapshot of our lives, while God sees the entire panoply. Thus, his perspective is far superior to ours. And that's the end of those quotes. Children are taught their real and human personalities are evil to the point of deserving death. Then, they're provided an identity, presumably from the God who made the ultimate sacrifice, so that their little lives can be spared and devoted to a constant homage to God's glory. The child may not want to do it, they may find it impossible to fully achieve it, but they must forever try their best to become the model identity in order to continue to receive God's forgiveness and mercy. The child must sacrifice themselves, who they are as individuals and human beings. Keep in mind, these aren't just good rules to live by, such as don't steal and don't murder. They also include restrictions against most forms of healthy consensual sexual expression and even most forms of sexual thoughts. 
It's as ridiculous as placing restrictions on the types of foods people are allowed to crave, or telling adherents that they can only speak in the presence of one person for the rest of their lives. It may be possible to spend one's life attempting to adhere to such things, but it's inhuman, and believing that such behaviors are evil to the point of deserving execution would be unhealthy. In the meantime, the church also applies high-pressure tactics. So, after telling children they're irredeemably evil, and how they need to live their lives down to which thoughts are and are not acceptable, they are told that while they ponder whether or not to accept this offer, if they should die unexpectedly, then they will have lost the opportunity forever. Choosing wrongly, or too late, will result in eternal distress, as they are separated both from God and all those they love. Examples used in the original slides are provided in this series, but anyone can Google these concepts and spend the next 10 years going through all the hits. It's a common threat in authoritative Christian churches to pressure people not to think too long about this decision. They encourage a rush to judgment. They do not encourage taking one's time to review the information and give it a thorough vetting. Isn't that the definition of foreclosing an identity? Asking for deep commitment with insufficient exploration? Here are the quotes. Quote number one. Death often comes quickly and without warning. Today could be your final day or mine to leave the earth. Are you ready to meet your God? Next quote. If you should die now, do you know that you would go to heaven? The important question is not whether you're a church member or if you've lived a clean life and do the best you can. If you can't answer yes to the above question, then God has sent this message to you. Please read it over and over, praying until it's clear and you're sure. You do not intend to be lost forever. You mean to make preparation for the other world before you die, don't you? Why not now? Next quote. If you were to die today, do you know for certain without a doubt that you would go to heaven? We will not accidentally go to heaven. This is a question about which we cannot afford to be wrong, because eternity is very permanent. One day each of us will know the true answer to this question, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us have two appointments that have already been made for us and that we will definitely keep. They are, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. These two appointments, death and judgment, cannot be canceled. We will keep them. End of quotes. There are other mechanisms in place that are used concurrently with methods like this. One such method is shunning. While this is reserved mainly for adherents who have left the religion, it's also a reality that children in conservative authoritarian religious homes are often not fully embraced or accepted until they sign on as an adherent. I've encountered many atheists, minors, and adults who fear coming out to friends and family. While these are examples of people feigning belief, it's also a reality that children crave acceptance from their parents. Similar to the pressure created by the thought of never seeing loved ones again in the afterlife, Losing the love and acceptance of family in the here and now is also a psychological pressure that can work to keep a child working to gain faith. So, after vilifying who you really are at your core, and telling you to suppress your innate human nature in order to adopt a truly inhuman identity, and after threatening you with torment for eternity, they also put guardrails in place in case you decide you still want to explore and consider more fully whether or not this is a path you would like to take. Finally in this episode, I'd like to look at undermining confidence. The following are more quotes. Quote number one. Would you feel the need to depend on God if you knew as much as he did? I think probably not. As arrogant and self-centered as man has proven himself to be, I think we would turn our backs on God. 
thinking we were able to give us everything we need. God gives us enough knowledge to know that he exists and that we are to surrender to him. He gives us the knowledge of why this is important and how we're supposed to do it, and he gives us the knowledge that tells us how very much he loves us. End that quote. Next quote. What he says we will do where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That actually comes from a hymn that was sung very frequently in the church that I attended as a child. Next quote. As you battle against sin, and while the same old sins continue to rise up against you, Satan tries to make you believe that these very battles are evidences of hypocrisy rather than a universal Christian condition. Let's unpack some of the quotes above. In the first quote, we're told not to trust ourselves or our fellow humans. We're told to trust God, and then told God is doling out the information on a need-to-know basis, and there isn't much you need to know. So don't worry your pretty little small-minded head over this, just do it. On a personal note, I find it interesting that you can trust yourself if you're going to choose to follow the church. The only time you shouldn't trust yourself is when you decide not to do so. The second quote is more of the same. Don't think, just do it. Commit, don't explore. Before the end, I will sound like a broken record, but this is a foreclosed identity. The same identity that correlates to a plethora of psychological maladies, and the same identity that will leave you in a constant state of turmoil and dissonance from constantly having to suppress yourself. And in the final quote, we see the framing of this as a battle with sin, and even Satan. In other words, it isn't the unhealthy foreclosed identity we're forcing you into that's causing the psychological torture. It's that you're a sinful, willful person. And the solution isn't to explore those conflicts and figure out what's best for you. It's to protect yourself against these satanic attacks. Ignore the psychological warnings your brain is throwing at you, suppress yourself even more, and proceed as though everything is fine. If anyone asks, say you've never been happier and more fulfilled since you gave your life over to Jesus. Other information to look at in this regard is language around servant and slave as it applies to Christian adherence. The relationship between the adherent and God is generally one of submission and servitude or slavery, and it's a perfect metaphor for the unhealthy sacrifice of the self and one's humanity that the conservative iterations of this religion demand. Additionally, one site in particular, LifeSite News, is an ode to the supposed evils of achieved identities. Most of the site is dedicated to vilifying autonomy and individual agency. It's a pervasive theme in authoritarian religious brands. These indoctrination tools are mainly internally oriented, geared towards psychological and emotional manipulation, but in part seven, we'll examine other tools and methods that have a more external focus. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to check out the information and support links in the description. As always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.